Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shadow of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. That's Psalm 61, which along with Psalm 62 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, March the 15th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing a look. Um, through the book of Jeremiah. Today we're in chapter 2, the first 13 verses, the gospel. We're continuing there with John 4, 43 to 54. And then in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 28 will be the ones we're going to look at today, although I have an opinion about that when we get there about what we're doing with that particular passage. Um, it's a particular um irritation of mine let's say with the um with the uh, the lectionary in the episcopal church um so we'll get when we get to that i'll i'll have more to say about that <clears throat> so in the in that first passage from jeremiah remember jeremiah yesterday we, we looked at the second part of the call of jeremiah the first time first day look at it is when it, I, before i formed you in the womb i called you and knew you and all that and then the second day is is that he's making sure that he's got jeremiah's full attention what do you see yes in that twice and then he he speaks into what he has jeremiah see and then he tells him i'm making you a strong fortified wall because you're going to need to be because they're going to push back against you and so I'll be with you in all that you do and so he's already proclaimed the judgment would come from the north and that the judgment was on the sin of apostasy going after other gods so here we go with the beginning of the the word that was given to Jeremiah the word of the Lord came to me saying go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem thus says the Lord I remember the devotion of your youth your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So what, what God's reflecting on here is when they came out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness during that period of time, and they were betrothed to him. And that essentially is what happens at Mount Sinai. It's essentially a marriage ceremony where he makes pledges and vows to the people and then asks them to return that vow. We will not go after other gods. We'll not make false images. That That's the, the other side of the covenant is, is that here are the terms of the covenant. And Israel's response was to say, we will do all that you say and we will listen so that we will further know and understand. And so the, he says, I remember those days. I remember those days with fondness when you trusted me and you followed me and I judged the nations that came out against you during that time. And he's trying to call them back to that same relationship, that same interdependence that they had at that time. And it's, it's, you see this same kind of image 
over and over again through the prophets with Hosea, it's particularly powerful and poignant because what he says is, I'm going to take you back to that time when it was just me and you. And you didn't have anything else. You weren't tempted by everything else. It's interesting that Jesus goes into the wilderness after, in order to be tempted. And the people are there in such a way that, that they have to trust and rely upon the Lord. So he goes on to say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. So that would include the lost tribes, the ones who had gone and formed the northern kingdom, who had been gone a hundred years or more before this. He's speaking to all of those clans, all of the tribes. But it's particularly directed at the house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. And Jacob and Israel, remember, are the same person. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? So please point me back to that time and tell me what defect there was in me that caused you and your fathers to go after other gods. And then went away after worthlessness and became worthless. They didn't say, where's the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits? in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. You know, that it's, that they, he said, this is the relationship before, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. How do you defile the land? You defile the land by going after other gods and worshiping other gods. The priest did not say, where's the Lord? Those who handle the law didn't know me. The shepherds, the leaders of Israel, is who he's speaking about there, transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that didn't profit. He said, he's basically saying, and I don't know why. This doesn't make any sense. What you've done, I, I, I brought you out. I nurtured you in the wilderness. I gave you this land and you defiled it. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. In other words, this is not going to resolve itself in the next 15 minutes. I see that I'm going to have constantly have this same battle. With your children's children I will contend. And that sounds like Jesus to me. It sounds like the children's children. So generations from now, I will contend with you. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are actually no gods? Seriously? I mean, you left the one who did all these things and you went after what? He says, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So these are cisterns that are intended to catch water when it comes through the rain, and they're, but they're broken. They won't even hold water, and I'm the fountain of living water. You could have had all the water you sought. It goes back to Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, that if she believed in him, then he would give her those rivers of living water coming up from within, which she'd never thirst again. So God is accusing the people of saying, you left me for nothing at all, 
And when he talks about these handmade cisterns, what he's talking about is the images and the idols of Baal and Asherah and all the other gods and goddesses that they have gone after here. These are handmade gods, just like you did at Sinai. You made those bull calves. And so now he says, you're doing the same thing again. And we've already gone down this road before, and I've already had to judge this, but I'm in covenant with you, and I'm begging you to come back. But I do have a case to make against you. In the gospel, so we have finished with the, um, the trip that Jesus made to Samaria, and now after two days in Samaria, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, which is exactly what you see in uh, Luke 4, where Jesus goes to Nazareth, goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and opens the scroll of Isaiah and said, now this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. And and that that's the context for when Jesus said this. So this would have been before all this time. <clears throat> So he came to Galilee. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast, which would have been normal for them to make the pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem for Passover. So they had seen all that Jesus did there, and they had heard all that Jesus had said there, and so now they're welcoming, having seen signs. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I mean, it seems like Jesus doesn't care. I mean, it's just, why take a shot at the guy? But it's the same basic thing that he does with a Syrophoenician woman. It's a challenge to step up and see what kind of faith there is. When he tells the Syrophoenician woman, it's not, it's not okay to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Not, not okay to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. He is eliciting faith from her. Now, this guy has faith just like she did. She came to him. He comes to Jesus. And so now here we go, and Jesus is challenging his faith by saying, unless you see a sign and wonder, you won't believe. Well, he already has faith. He has come to Jesus. He believes Jesus can heal his son. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So he's given him two things here, and one of those is faith, because he's, he, when he says, come down, what he's saying is, I believe that you can do something. I believe that the, that the future will change if you come. I believe you can heal him. But there's a limit to that faith, right? Sir, come down before my child dies. So he believes that before the child dies, Jesus can do something, but he can't make that statement afterwards. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. He didn't wait for the sign. He heard the command, and he went. And, and that was the faith that Jesus was eliciting from this man. <clears throat> I don't have to go with you. Do you have enough faith for that? Do you have enough faith to believe it now and go in the faith that he will be healed, that I, that I can do that? And the man believed, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, which is 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. 
and he himself believed and all his household. So we know that he came to Jesus in faith. He believed Jesus could do something if he came with him. And then we know that he also then increased faith in in the sense that when Jesus says, go, your son will live, he went without Jesus. And so he had faith for that. And now his faith is rewarded by the healing of his son. And it's increased by finding that it was exactly the same time when Jesus spoke the words that he was actually healed. So the connection was made between Jesus's words and this young man's healing. So the, we see a journey of faith here in three phases, right? He comes to Jesus and believes that if Jesus goes with me, he can heal him. And then he takes a second step of faith to say, I'm going to go based on the word Jesus has spoken. And now that faith is confirmed and strengthened when he sees that indeed the word that Jesus has spoken has come true. And at the same time that Jesus spoke it. So the connection is established between those words and that healing. John says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Continuing in the epistle today in in Romans, um, here we'll get to the end of it, and then I'll I'll explain to you why I'm perturbed. (laughs) So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If we had more Christians that weren't ashamed of the gospel, that weren't afraid to speak their faith for fear of ridicule or rejection, then Paul never worried about that. I mean, the man was rejected a million times. He was persecuted. He was beaten. He was arrested. He had all this stuff happen to him. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Which is exactly what Peter said. There's no other name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. That's what he speaks to the, to the Sanhedrin when, he's called, when he and John are called before them. And, and Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of this at all. Even if I'm in chains, even no matter what the situation, no matter how it is that people react to the gospel, doesn't matter to me because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's important that I preach this to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other, what he means by that is that's to whom it was first proclaimed. And then, but it, it's, it's for everybody. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, this is the thing that sparked Luther on the Protestant Reformation is to say that it's about faith and not by works that we're saved. And, and so Paul is very clear. Nobody could have ever believed that Paul was encouraging you to believe that you could be saved by works. No, you have to be saved by faith. He makes the case again and again and again in every one of his um, epistles. He's for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness by men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been perceived ever since the creation of the world. And so to go back just a little bit where he says what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. What Paul's speaking of there is creation displays the glory of God. And, but he says before that, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, you live in such a way, people live in such a way, that, and they prosper in those ways, and, and it looks like that they have the truth or that the truth doesn't matter. But the other side of it is, is that when we deny God as creator, 
then we are also suppressing the truth. And so that's if, if the theory of evolution has done one horrible thing, it's that people have taken it way beyond any sort of logical conclusions. They've extended it to become the new creation myth. And so there have been endless experiments done um, such as the Miller-Urey, U-R-E-Y experiment that purported to show how life could have assembled itself given certain building blocks being there. But now nobody believes those building blocks would have been there from the beginning. And so if you take that theory and you expand it out to be the theory of everything and you expand it out to be the new creation myth, well, there's a lot that's unaccounted for in that creation myth. But the problem is, is that it suppresses the truth and because it keeps God out of the equation. And that's why it was such an important thing is because it kept God out of the equation. It moved him somewhere else. And, and it, the evidence <laughs> doesn't justify that conclusion. No matter how you interpret the evidence, the evidence doesn't justify the conclusion that God didn't create anything. That, that has not been dealt with. And no matter what proposals have been made, they fall short, right? So it, there was a big bang. Okay, I'm good with that. I don't actually have a problem with that. What caused it and what was there before? What was there to explode? If it's string theory and there, there are endless multiverses, where did all that happen? You're still not going back far enough to get to the point of being able to explain origins, so he says there's, that God is revealed in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. You can lie to yourself all you like, he says, but at the end of the day, it's just a lie. You're just lying to yourself, trying to obscure a truth, because you don't want to know it. You don't want that thing to be true. It was like Einstein with quantum physics. He, he didn't, no, 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 that's spooky action at a distance and God don't play dice. He, he, he didn't like the idea of quantum physics because he liked the idea that he had explained everything. And then quantum physics comes along and says, well, that doesn't account for this. And that's continually the issue in science. I'm not throwing off on science. I'm just saying that it evolves. If I've heard anything over the last two years more often than science evolves and follow the science, then I don't know what it is. But the problem is you've got to follow science because it's not sitting still. And so that the, the point is, is that we've come up with all these excuses and all these explanations to get God out of the equation, and we still haven't succeeded in doing it. He said, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they were, they were going after other creation myths, is essentially what he's saying. And so they've defined God out of that equation. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they, they created idols for themselves um, rather than worshiping the true and living God who created all things. He said, because of that, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the crea creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And we see that in Mother Earth worship. We see it in all these sort of... Um, animistic kinds of worship and, and where i am here in Asheville, there you could worship anything here with other people because that's just the way it is it it is so bought into 
a scientific mindset that it doesn't actually understand and, and doesn't understand that it loses explanatory power the further you try and extend that argument, then th- th- what they've done is is that, that they prefer that. Because we all prefer not to be accountable to a God who is righteous. And so the preference then causes us to go in different directions. Once we reject the truth, Paul says, and, and we see this in Genesis 6, for instance, what we see is once we start down the road, then there's no end to it. And so what happened here is, is that the, the um, people who put together the lectionary decided, okay, we're going to leave the next little part of this out. But we're, we're going to do it in what I consider to be a dishonest way. We're going to stop the lesson for today at verse 25, but we're, but, and we're going to pick up the lesson tomorrow at verse 28. So we leave two verses out, which should always make you go, hmm, why did it do that? And here's what it says. <clears throat> for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I don't want to make too much of homosexuality, but when you pull those two verses out, you have forced me to believe that you make much of homosexuality. Because there's no reason to just omit those two verses. But Paul says that once you reject the truth of God then God gives you up to the lust in your hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of your body among yourselves because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And he says what that does is it, it, it changes things from the natural orientation, the way in which God created all things in order that they could be fruitful and multiply, and it turns all that into a narcissistic love of self, which is shown by men and women preferring one another rather than the pursuit of the, the normal, natural, and intended way for things to be. It doesn't mean that homosexuality is chief among the sins. But what it says is, is that once you begin to not see God in the natural, then everything becomes unnatural. 